Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Miss the show? No problem on point and on the podcast. A new study revealing that kids around the world have missed one year of school with all the disruption. When and where are we going to have this conversation about getting our kids caught up? Are we going to add extra school time, summer school, add another year? When does that conversation start? One year later, those in charge are just now putting in measures that should have been done last year. Why do we need field hospitals now instead of what should have happened, I don't know, maybe last March? And when it comes to brain health and brain research, why are men's brains the predominant source of where we get our data? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? The rigorous follow-ups the Prime Minister is talking about in 2018, Mr. Speaker. Everyone around this Prime Minister was aware of the sexual harassment allegations in 2018. Why in 2019 did the Prime Minister extend the contract of the Chief of Defence Staff and give him a promotion? You're right, Honourable Prime Minister. In 2018, my office was aware of the Minister's direction to the Ombudsman. But my office and I learned of the details of the allegation through news reporting over the past months. Mm, yeah, when it comes to sexual misconduct, no tolerance doesn't actually mean no tolerance when it comes to our feminist prime minister. Global News has uh, caught the prime minister in a little old lie. And for once, you know, question period actually delivered some answers. And it's uh, now very clear that when it comes to the whole who knew what and when regarding the sexual misconduct allegations against former Defense Chief General Vance, that Trudeau actually did know back in 2018 about them. And not only did he do nothing about it, his government still went ahead and extended Vance's contract. And Mercedes Stevenson is the journalist who broke this story. It's been a ton of work for her. She has asked the prime minister's office repeatedly over the last few weeks if Trudeau knew of the allegations that had been brought up back in 2018 and Trudeau in his office insisted that, no, no, we only learned through global news. And she also asked the minister, Harjit Sajjan, several times, did you tell the prime minister in 2018? Was it brought to his attention? And of course, the minister refused to say. Now we know why. And it's because the most feminist prime minister ever, you know, the guy who tells us all the time that there's a no tolerance policy for this kind of behavior doesn't actually mean no tolerance. And his refusal to act and instead, you know, turn a blind eye to this over the last few years kind of proves it. Can the prime minister tell us why he did not immediately demand that the chief of defense staff resign when he learned of allegations against him in 2018? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, as a government, we have always taken allegations of sexual misconduct very seriously. No one should ever 
feel unsafe at work. It is clear, mm. though, that the many measures we have taken since being in government haven't yet gone far enough, and they haven't moved fast enough. As I said yesterday, we need to move faster, and we will do more. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Taken very seriously, Mr. Mr. Speaker. Michael Wernick, the former clerk of the Privy Council, has admitted he was aware of the allegations. Elder Marquez, the senior advisor to the Prime Minister, was made aware. In 2015, the Prime Minister told the House that sexual harassment in our military is unacceptable. So why was it acceptable for him to ignore it in 2018? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, that's simply not true. No, 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 it's true. I mean, it was crystal clear today. You know, the Prime Minister says one thing, and he does another. And several women have come forward. Mercedes Stevenson has talked to women. And it is very clear that, from the reporting we've gotten, the highest advisors in the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister himself have known for three years that there had been sexual allegations leveled at Canada's top soldier. And they didn't act. They did nothing. They didn't protect the alleged complainant. They didn't push for any kind of investigation. They didn't remove Vance. All they did was look away and, oh yeah, extend his contract. Because what is actually fact and is reported by Mercedes is that a woman in the military came forward in 2018. She has this allegation of sexual misconduct involving this officer. And when the military ombudsman took it to the defense minister and then offered defense, uh, evidence, Harjit Sage and said, nope, nope, don't want it, and turned him away. Instead of actually doing anything about it, Harjit Sajjan and Mr. Trudeau ignored it. And I, I don't understand it. How is it that the wokest government in the country's history gets away with so many lies? You know, Trudeau does blackface. It's just a learning lesson. He takes a knee and all is forgiven. He's accused of groping a woman. He experiences it differently. The transparency he campaigned and promised doesn't exist. And the no-tolerance spin, spin that he always spews means absolutely nothing. I don't know how he can call himself a feminist because he continually fails to stand up for women. He is, however, standing up for Harjit Sajjan. I mean, he's made clear and he's been asked several times, are you going to ask the minister to step aside? Nope, he's not going anywhere. Albeit, if you listen carefully, it's almost like you can hear the sound of a bus warming up. So stay tuned. I mean, Pinocchio has got nothing on this prime minister. Just nothing. And sure, he's appointed a woman to be Canada's vice chief of defense. But sadly, it looks like it's just being done for optics. You know, Lieutenant General Francis Allen gets to clean up a, a mess very much. Once again made by a prime minister who talks a very good game, but is constantly caught lying. And it's simply baffling how he continually gets away with it. So question period, I think, today was very, very revealing. And not a great day for Mr. Trudeau. And he was, uh, he was ruffled. His feathers were certainly ruffled after that exchange with Aaron O'Toole, which lasted a good five or six minutes. Because then he started getting asked, you know, why are you extending vaccines? Why is it that we are the only country that are extending vaccines by four months? Like, where is this coming from? And he got real snarky. Is the prime minister confident that his non-data driven decision to space the Pfizer vaccines doses four months apart will not lead to vaccine resistant variants developing in Canada? 
The right honourable Prime Minister. Well, this is interesting because we've all seen conservative politicians casting doubt on science, casting doubt on experts, saying the pandemic isn't real, you shouldn't wear masks. It is really concerning to hear that kind of, of uh, suspicion around what scientists and experts say from the conservative health critic. However, knowing what the Conservative Party's approach is on science, we shouldn't be surprised. The thing is, it's not backed by data. It's not backed by science because, oh yeah, no country's done it. It is not available. And that's why a number of scientists have penned a letter to all the premiers, to Dr. Tam. They've spoken out against it. That's why Pfizer won't sign off on it. So no, I'm sorry. There is no science on this. But again, you know, just like with the the Vance scandal, you just don't get transparency. And on this one, you know, it won't take long for the delay in shots to be seen as a lie. And the last thing we need when it comes to vaccines is for people to be given a reason not to trust them. So this has not been a great day for the Prime Minister. But it was fun to see him get all hot and bothered. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. Alrighty, you know, we got kids back in school. Uh, we're finally, you know, a year into this thing. We've got them into a system with some structure. You know, now the challenge becomes getting them caught up because I think while a lot of people assume that they've missed just a couple of months here and there, it is not even close. And UNICEF, they've done this global study. And even with e-learning, the data that they gathered suggests that those months here and there add up to a full year of education loss for 168 million kids throughout the world. So the question and the conversation that I think we need to be having and we are not having is how are we going to reverse this damage? You know what, are we just going to push these kids through to the next grade? Do you put them in summer school? Do you bring back grade 13? Who knows, because no one's talking about it. Paul Bennett is Director of Schoolhouse Consulting, and we call this segment Education Watch. Paul, good to have you. Nice to be back. So I, I was chatting with my principal the other day, and I love my kids' school, and I love the teachers, but she said something interesting to me. She said, I said, how are we going to get them caught up? And she said, you know, right now, I'm not as worried about getting them caught up as I am making them feel safe and, um, you know, secure. How long can we let that go on? I mean, at some point, they do have to get caught up. That um, was valid for the first two or three months, perhaps, uh, when the pandemic hit. We're approaching the one-year mark. In fact, schools were closed about a year ago this week. And uh, so we do have a lot of data, and we've got a lot of knowledge, and lessons have been learned. And they're not that. They're not the lesson that she's been promoting or talking about. Uh, Learning loss is real. It's catastrophic. And it's hit those who could least afford to miss school the most. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to my own situation. We know that our son has fallen very much far behind, so we're already looking into programs and tutoring and all the rest of it. We're lucky we can do that. A lot of parents won't be able to do that. But there is no conversation even being had about, you know, the things I mentioned. Are we going to see summer school? Are we going to see grade 13 back? Like, how are how is the public education system going to adapt and change and make up for all this lost time? The public debate has been co-opted by faculty of education, influencers, people like Andy Hargraves of the University of Ottawa or Joel Weistheimer. These are well-known progressives who uh, have never really thought much of 
teaching uh, content, testing, evaluation, or putting a focus on academics. And they've come to the fore because they see building back better as being something more progressive, less demanding, less rigorous. But around the world, what we're learning is that, uh, you know, one in seven children have suffered dramatically. Um, and those are um, in the disproportionately in communities of people that are marginalized uh, or who are socially and economically disadvantaged. Now, Joel Westheimer, this is how far faculties of education go in their bubble. They don't really, they, they've learned nothing through the pandemic. This is what Joel Westheimer wrote today in the Ottawa Citizen. These are the three lessons. Content matters more than coverage, and you don't need to learn the content or the coverage. Two, inequality undermines work that educators do. And three, teaching is essential work. Now, my first reaction was, he's learned nothing, because those are the same things he was saying before the pandemic hit. My three lessons are different. Can I share them with your audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, um, what are the three lessons then that we've learned through this catharsis, this tremendous crisis worldwide that UNESCO describes as an educational catastrophe? Well, first of all, it is a catastrophe for the whole generation of students worldwide, less so in Canada, and it's fallen on urban uh, school districts where there were higher levels of COVID and more interruption going throughout this year. So learning loss is real, and there will be a reckoning. Second, and I think this is important, the high school experience has been completely disastrous. Back in uh, the early 2000s, CEA studied, uh, what did you learn in school today? And they did studies around the country, and they found out, what are high school students learning? And what they found was, their social engagement was high, but their academic engagement was so low, it was alarming. In other words, mm -hmm. what high schoolers valued was everything but academic studies. They valued their friends. So you're getting a story in the Globe and Mail on the weekend by Aaron Anderson, young, bored, and lonely. So that's mm -hmm. high schoolers. And then the third lesson is that those who have complex needs have been devastated by this. Yeah. Students with complex needs have suffered the most, most. It's no exaggeration to say that they've lost a lifeline of key supports. Some of your listeners would have seen the story about Beverly Street School in Toronto and, um, and Miles Dempsey, the nine-year-old who has cerebral palsy and yeah. epilepsy. His entire world has been shattered by the disruption in school. And of course, it's fallen very heavily on those parents. So three lessons, and not the lessons you're going to hear from Andy Hargraves or from uh, uh, um, Joel Westheimer in those faculties of education. They're saying essentially what they've been saying for 15 or 20 years. Uh, class matters. Class divisions are what we should be talking about, and we should work on the longer-term social inequalities. Well, I think it's, it's a serious crisis and the time for talking about those longer-term things is really past. 
Well, also, if you want to address social inequalities, make sure children get the very best education. That's really how they build the skills. My concern, and I think parents should be concerned about, you know, whether, um, you know, the attitude is let's just push them into the next grade because they've been through so much, where I think, no, I would rather my child be kept back or they tack on an extra six months or put grade 13 back just to make sure that the kids actually have the skills um, and what they need so that they can actually advance, you know, post uh, high school and get through school. I mean, just pushing them through does not fix anything. It just compounds the problem. I'm very close to a few psychologists who work with children. And what they're telling me is the toll is significant. It starts with significant learning loss, and then it's associated with social maladjustment, loneliness, and other issues that uh, increasingly affect uh, teenagers. This is where it's falling um, the greatest. But my, my real point is, is this, that it, it's too serious to leave it to faculty of education professors who are actually using the opportunity to build back better, and it looks so familiar. It looks like what they've been recommending for 10 or 15 years. Yeah, and so, you know, the problem, and there's going to be many, is getting unions on board and, and, and not pushing back. Um, so there, there is going to have to be some give and take. Question is, you know, will the unions give and, and, and help make these year months up, um, or are we in for another battle? I'm more hopeful than you are. I really think that um, with, there have been lessons learned. Teaching yeah. is essential work. There's every parent, working parent, knows how important it is to have teachers. So teachers coming out of this are in a better position because they're. Uh, I think most fair-minded parents say it's a tough job and we can hardly wait until the teachers are in charge of it again. They've had too much of it and it's exhausting. So the teachers will gain from that. But the other thing is um, they're going to have to embrace technology. They're going to have to um, adjust to the changing environment. And the fact that um, hybrid learning is here to stay, it's not just a temporary operation. And they're going to have to look differently at what the workload is. It's different. It's changed. Yeah. And uh, what we have to thank, I hate to say this, there is a silver lining. And that mm -hmm. is, I think the debate about whether we need e-learning is over. E-learning is here to stay. We need to find the right proportion. It has to be properly planned, and it has to be integrated into every child's learning. We know that now because we have to be prepared for the next pandemic or the next ma massive disruption. We should be thinking you know, beyond this, and is this going to be the new normal? So I think there's some, some lessons to be learned. And I, I think uh, it's quite understandable. You know, teachers have been traumatized, and they are very, 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 very concerned. I'm on a uh, Twitter feed with 49 educators, and it's the most depressing thing I've ever heard. I get a steady stream, and I kid you not, of 100 articles about the dangers to teachers of COVID spreading in the schools and all this and that, and quoting um, Dr. Fishman. He's the, <laughs> he's the doctor that favors everything the teachers advocate, they are genuinely traumatized. And I think there's a bigger issue with teachers, um, I, uh, and we need to address the issues of making them more confident about teaching right. and building yeah. their confidence. Tone, tone down the rhetoric. And, and, and doing and, the job. Yeah, because yeah. they do want to do it. I think they get a hard rap sometimes. The teachers do want to do it, but, you know, there's so much politics uh, surrounding this.
Um, well, no doubt, Paul, it's uh, timely that we talk about it as we are, um, you know, the day before the year anniversary. So I appreciate it. We'll talk again. Thank you so much. Bye for now. That is uh, Paul Bennett joining us. And we call this segment Education Watch because he's got about, what, four, three, four decades in uh, education. So he knows what he's talking about. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, And this is Global News Radio. This headline puzzled me when I saw it because I don't understand why it's being done now, but this will treat up to 100 patients and will be completed next month. But why now are we building an emergency field hospital that won't be ready for this predicted uh, third wave? Now, I don't know if this is being done to fulfill a a deal that uh, SNC struck with the Trudeau government where they have been given $150 million to build five. That's right. Five field hospitals. I don't know if that's to fulfill that deal. I don't know. But here we are on the evening before the one-year anniversary when everything as we knew it in our lives shut down. And then we started the first of many lockdowns in our homes. And we're starting to open up. Those in charge are now putting measures in place that should have been done months ago. I don't get it. David Redman is a retired colonel. He's also the former executive director at the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. And, of course, he spent 25 years in the military dealing with things like, oh, I don't know, logistics and coming up with plans for emergencies. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're told that this unit's a, it's going to keep the healthcare system flexible. It'll ensure these specialized resources, such as an intensive care and all the things that you need. Um, my question is, why now? You have me completely baffled as as you are. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, what we're seeing is the uh, the annual seasonal drop in viral infections. So unless they're planning uh, that this is going to be required in the third wave come next October, uh, because they believe vaccines are going to fail, I have no idea why they're doing it. Yeah, you would think that these would have been required maybe, I don't know, last March. Um, so to see them going up now will make for a nice photo op. But what it tells me is that we're just, those in charge are doing stuff to be seen doing stuff, because I don't know who this will serve. Well, when I see the numbers in, in Ontario today, you have uh, 678 people in hospital in acute mm-hmm. care beds. And as we discussed the last time, uh, you have 22,358 acute care beds. So yeah. I'm not sure what A, 100 more beds is going to do, or B, why you're doing it when clearly your hospital system isn't being challenged and won't be challenged and wasn't challenged even when you had 1,760 people in acute care beds at the peak. So it, it leaves me baffled. Well, maybe you should come up uh, and deal with the emergency preparedness for Ontario because you know the numbers. You seem to be able to state the clear case that the need is not there. And meanwhile, we've been locked down, as you well know, almost forever, it feels like, for months. We're slowly opening up, but now we're being warned of this third wave and events are still being cancelled well into the summer. I mean, we just seem to be going the opposite uh, in, in the opposite direction of every other part of this country and every other country in the world. So, Alex, if if I can go back to to when we talked the last time, um, the whole idea that lockdowns actually decrease case count was known not to be true before this pandemic. In 2019, the non-pharmaceutical measures uh, document Mm -hmm. was published worldwide, and specific things like workplace closures, school closures were all strongly recommended against, except in extremely severe pandemics, and this isn't one of those. 
because they knew they would cause significant collateral damage. And so, first of all, we knew they didn't inhibit the, the, the case count growth. And even from the first wave, there's now definitive medical studies, and I'll read you the results of one. What it did is it compared lockdown to completely non-lockdown countries. And at the end of the study, comparing all of the countries in the world through the first wave, they said, while small benefits cannot be excluded, we do not find significant benefits on case growth of more restricted non-pharmaceutical interventions. So if, if lockdowns, as we know them, that's throwing all 18 out of 18 non-pharmaceutical interventions at our society, causing massive collateral damage, mm-hmm. don't have an impact on case count, then there is absolutely no reason for lockdowns, period, because they cause massive collateral damage and don't even flatten your curve, if you want to use that terminology. This virus has followed the seasonal viral infection curve of Canada almost exactly. And so what that says, for instance, in Ontario, you're going to consider continue to see the same sort of number of case counts until about middle April, when it'll start to tail off and do like it does every summer, basically drop to zero. So right. having these lockdowns okay. isn't affecting that. And yet it's got massive collateral damage for your society. Yeah, it seems that in the Toronto GTA area, I mean, we have been long, locked down longest almost than any other city or country in the world. We've been hovering around the 1,000 to 1,300 case mark, um, and, and those numbers haven't gone down. And yet, as you know, small businesses, gyms, uh, hairdressing salons and that have been forced to stay shut down, and they're obviously not the cause of the spread. And and so, you know, when you listen to the experts um, talk, you know, they're still considering, you know, we may have to go back into lockdown or we may have to go back into a more restricted area, but but the cases are staying the same as they were before. So the lockdown measures aren't even working. We see every year that the case counts peak around the end of the first week of January, drop to a plateau, which is exactly where you're at. They motor along on that plateau with little ups and downs and then drop off in the middle of April. So so we're, we're, we're trying to Uh, use lockdowns to affect the case count, they have no effect. And yet what they are doing is destroying your business. They're destroying the mental health, the the education of our children, the other severe illnesses, because people are too afraid to go to hospital when they have heart attack symptoms. It's just Mm -hmm. unconscionable what we're doing. And, And I simply put to you that the government now is trapped in its own world of fear. And until we remove fear from the government, they will then have to remove the fear from society. And and what you're seeing is your medical officers of health and your premier have bought completely into the modeling of fear. And the models keep saying that these, these giant spikes can happen again at any time. Mother Nature says it doesn't. Right. And and to your point, you know, they, they talk about all the time, the big talking point is that we rely on the science and we're going to do everything that the doctors say. And yet when you see the vaccines, now they're playing with the taxine, uh, vaccines and tinkering with the delay of dosage and, and giving them four months apart, which, again, that's not backed by science. Well, and, and I want to take you back to the non-pharmaceutical intervention document produced by the best environment um, um, uh, viral infection doctors in the world. So we're being selective about what science we believe, because that document dated 2019 was reissued with the best medical advice and scientific evidence in the world about the use of those non-pharmaceutical interventions and said, don't use them. 
So we're very selective in what science we seem to be picking these days and through this entire pandemic. And, and I'm, I'm challenged to try and understand why a medical officer of health would use as their first choice the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Let me give you the one for, for workplace right out of that document. When to apply. It says right at the end, closure should be a last step only considered in extraordinarily severe pandemics. Well, this isn't an extraordinarily severe pandemic. The only people that are dying in this pandemic, not the only people, but the majority of people, 96%, are seniors over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. And by that, I mean three or more severe comorbidities. Average age of death in Canada, 84. People who are between the age of 20 and 40 have a six times greater chance of dying in a car accident this year than they do of COVID. What are we doing? Well, that's a good question. I think a lot more people are starting to ask, you know, what have we done? Uh, the price clearly, uh, has certainly been, I think, uh, much bigger than the, the cost, as they say, is, is costlier than the disease. But nonetheless, uh, you're not in charge here, and that, that is to our loss. But I always appreciate your time on this and your insight. Thank you very much, Alex. That is David Redmond joining us, a retired colonel who um, spent a whole lot of time in the military dealing with these kinds of things. And... Uh, a shame we don't have that kind of leadership here now. We could use it. And I was surprised to learn that when it comes to our brain research, there is still a lot of inequality. And you look at the data, and uh, we gals apparently dominate serious brain health concerns, whether it's depression, uh, anxiety, Alzheimer's. And yet when it comes to studying brain health, for whatever reason, the focus seems to mainly be on men's brains. Maybe that's because they get bumped around a bit more than us, but I don't know why that would happen. Maybe uh, our next guest can explain that. Liz Poslin is founder of the Women's Brain Health Initiative. It's great to have you. Thank you for inviting me, Alex. This is a national charity that's dedicated to protecting the brain health of women, um, you know, by helping to fund research. But I've never even thought about whose brain gets studied. We always hear about the athletes, the hockey players, the football players who donate their brains for science. And we've gleaned a lot of information on how rattling around the brain can cause all sorts of issues in that. But I never really thought, and I don't think people mostly think about how much study and research we do on women's brains. Why is there such an imbalance? I think it's a bit historic. Um, You know, um, a lot of times uh, women have been left out of, say, clinical trials especially over um, the reproductive years uh, because of some concerns that have happened in the past. So part of it is historic and part of it is because of the complexity that women may bring to a study because of the hormones and the menstrual cycle. And so even at the grassroots level of research where they're studying lab rat behavior, they typically scientists typically study the male rat again because the hormones in the female rat make it too expensive. And science generally is expensive. So if you can, uh, you know, study male and apply it to female, then the philosophy is you're doing right for both men and women. But women do have more complexities than men, but you can't just discount half the population, especially because women do seem to suffer from diseases like Alzheimer's more than men. Well, we we do say women are from... Uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, and I think people laugh at that. But we we are wired quite differently. And I was surprised about the statistic when it comes to um, Alzheimer's. What seventy percent 
um, of women uh, tend to get that. And so it's not like um, we're just catching up to men. We seem to dominate in these mental health issues. And so it surprises me that in 2021, they haven't changed the way the research is done. It's starting to change because of organizations like ours and others who are saying, look, this is uh, inequitable. You can't, again, discount half the population. And without looking at uh, women and men, you're never going to find out why women have uh, certain ailments uh, differently than men and whether they should be treated differently. Um, today, more and more of the scientists are considering sex and gender in their studies, but it's no different than 20 years ago when they, you know, women uh, were suffering from heart failure because their symptoms presented differently. And it wasn't until they were studied uh, separately for men did the scientific community start to understand men and women are indeed different, that the organs are different and how they um, respond to treatment also may be different. And do we have um, any data, as I gain uh, a couple of years and, you know, as I get up there, um, do we have any data yet to, to, to you know, ex- explain why, why women seem to get Alzheimer's more than men? Well, they're starting to suss that out now. Uh, for instance, Dr. Jillian Einstein, who is the world's first research chair in women's brain health and aging at the University of Toronto, she's looking at the impact that hormones have on brain health. Mm. Because, as you know, as women go through menopause, they mm-hmm. uh, lose the estrogen, and estrogen is neuroprotective. Uh-huh. So is that one of the reasons why? Women also um, have sleep disorders way more than men do. Um, and again, sleep is important for... because we don't sleep. The toxins <laughs> in our brain, that's right. And, the, yeah. and, and also our stress. Um, excess levels of stress release cortisol mm-hmm. into the entire body, but including the brain, and that's damaging to the brain. And again, women tend to suffer from stress as much as men. So all of these things are now starting to be understood a little bit better because, you know, some of the scientists are looking at the differences between sex and gender. And Boy, twenty. This yeah. pandemic sure will glean a lot of research. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see when the researchers look back to, to the stress and then all the things that have gone on in the last year between men and women, you know, what that teaches us about uh, brains when you're speaking about things like stress. But I would also maybe um, jump, uh, kind of hazard the guess that hormone replacement, those kinds of treatments or um, IVF uh, for women, all those things would also play a factor, wouldn't they? They definitely would. And again, um, having hormone replacement therapy may be the right decision, but it is definitely a personal decision that has to be discussed with the doctor to see if it's right for women. Mm -hmm. A lot of women do benefit from being on uh, hormone replacement therapy, uh, therapy, but at the right time. How long will it take then? for us to catch up um, with the kinds of data. I mean, because it, it only benefits men as well if we can glean information off of both sexes. So wh- when will we see kind of a, a parity when it comes to this kind of research? That's a good question. Uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, you know, for those of us who are starting to forget why they're walking to a room, I think there's more anxiety <laughs> around, you know, why uh, people are starting to forget as the population is aging. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. but certainly we, we hope that uh, it will become more equal um, over the next uh, three to five years. And certainly, you know, brain health and, and you know, it, it's become more of a talking um, issue because we've had so many stories about, you know, pro athletes when they get jostled around and then we see what happens when they age and what happens to their brain and some of the things that they suffer, um, you know, so we've seen this kind of growth in donation of brains, um, you know, so that can be studied. Is that kind of initiative pushed when it comes to women as well, just so that the data can be gathered? 
Well, absolutely. Women should uh, participate uh, equally as men in all types of research. But what we've also started to uncover, and this is for both men and women, is that, you know, by the time symptoms of disease like Alzheimer's occur, it's likely that the damage has happened 20 to 25 years prior. So really, Mm. Alzheimer's is a midlife disease whose symptoms show up in old age. And we also know that there are things you can do that protect your brain health, lifestyle choices that you can make that can either increase your risk or decrease your risk, which means you have more control over your cognitive destiny than you may realize. And this is important research that started to uh, come out now for both men and women, that they can do things to protect their cognitive health as they age. And the earlier you start, the better. No kidding. Well, I, I will never forget the words of a doctor after I had a couple of concussions and I also had a subarachnoid brain hemorrhage and he just looked at me and he said, lady, you're turning into a hockey player. The more you jostle that thing around, it's going to really cost you in the long run. And I guess, uh, yikes, I might be doomed. But Absolutely. And yeah. women suffer from concussions differently than men, actually. Um, and it is important for women to participate in these studies. How so? In terms of, uh, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury. How so? Um, particularly as they go through uh, uh, their, their own uh, menstrual cycle. Um, ah. they, they suffer, they just, again, as the science is starting to look at women and men differently in terms of uh, TBI, they're starting to uncover uh, differences, and they do have to explore why. Hmm. Jeez, I should start looking into this. It's a fascinating part of uh, research, but, um, you know, if we didn't have organizations like yourself, running them, then uh, we wouldn't know about it. So I appreciate the information on it. Thank you. This is Women's Brain Health Initiative. That is Lynn Poslin. So if you want more information, there you go. It's fascinating. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.